and our hearts truly are restless until we find our rest in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would be pleased to work on our hearts today to fix our eyes on Christ, that everything else in this world would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and in the light of his grace. God, may we hear you speak powerfully this morning to our souls as your word is echoed in this room. And Jesus Christ, may you be our vision both now and forevermore. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 10. We are going to spend the next two weeks, this week and next week, in Judges. First, Judges 10. Next, Judges 11. We are going to get to Jephthah. Jephthah is a major judge and a major disappointment of a judge. We're going to get to him, but... I wanted to just press pause. Um, Chapter 10 is very easy to rush through. You're going to see it. It's short. It's very easy. The main point is obvious. There are two judges in the uh, book of Judges in chapter 10. There's two judges that we find. And it'd be very easy to just skip over them. And many preachers do, many commentaries do, but I don't want to do that. They're called minor judges. Tola and Jair, minor judges, but they are not minor because they are less important. I don't know if you had a, um, a toy that you really wanted when you were a child for Christmas. I know for me, the toy that I really wanted was a Nintendo Game Boy. I don't know if you guys know what a Nintendo Game Boy is. I had the little uh, slot in the back that you could put the cartridge in, Uh, Those of you who know the problem with cartridges, you know the battle to have to take it out and go, and hope that that did anything. I still don't know why that makes it work, but it does. Put it in, turn it on. This was what I wanted. Now, my family wasn't poor, but my family wasn't millionaires. And so I remember getting for Christmas little handheld video games, similar to a Game Boy. Nintendo Game Boy was supposed to be something that you could take with you. You could put it in your backpack, take it to school and play um, when you have downtime at school. And I remember I received these handheld video game units. They weren't Nintendo Game Boy. They were like the knockoff brand of Nintendo Game Boy. And whereas Nintendo Game Boy allowed you to play the entirety of Super Mario Brothers and beat Bowser at the end, My little handheld devices, I had a Lion King one, I had a Kermit the Frog one, I had a baseball one. The baseball one was one of my favorites, because I loved baseball, and when you turn the the little game, handheld game system on, it would beep incessantly at you. It was trying to beep some baseball song that you could not make out from the beeps. It would beep, and then... You were a batter instantly. No team name. No, you don't know what's happening. No innings. No pitch count. It's just you're a batter hoping to hit a ball. And the pitch would go something like this. Far off in the distance in this tiny little screen, you would see a tiny little black sliver. And all of a sudden, it would go 
baseball swing and gone. And if you'd missed the baseball, one shot, that's all you had to try and hit the baseball, uh, if you missed it, the game would just go game over. One pitch. I'm going, wait a second. <laughs> this is supposed to be three strikes you're out. And I just got, I guess this, this game system is you're out. I mean, this strike, strike out, this was terrible. And I remember going to school, and my friends had the Game Boy. And I just remember thinking, I got the short end of the stick here. This is just a knockoff. Sometimes I think when we come to places in the scriptures where we're wanting something very deep, very profound, and it seems like it's not there, we tend to feel like we've been ripped off. Like this just, this isn't what I was asking for. Chapter 10 doesn't have huge, deep, uh, profound um, warriors. This isn't the really cool stories like Ehud. What's going on here? We might be tempted to think that chapter 10 is really just a cheap substitute for what we've been going through. But I want to submit to you that chapter 10 is incredibly important. And though they are called minor judges, there is nothing minor about this section. They're only called minor judges because less ink is spilled on their account. They are equally as profound. They're equally as amazing. They're equally as um, used by God in incredible, miraculous, wonderful ways. So much so that I I think that when we get to heaven, we're going to have to find these people. We're going to have to seek them out because we don't get the depth of their story. But we understand the echoes of what their story means for us today. So I want to pray. I want to ask God's blessing on our time. And then I want to dive into chapter 10. We'll probably only get through verse 16. We'll leave 17 and 18 as a setup for Jephthah next week. And we'll get all of chapter 11 next week. But as we prepare to take communion this morning... I just don't think there's a better place to go than Judges chapter 10 to ask our hearts, what is it that we are serving? Who are we serving? What are we seeking to be satisfied by? And really come before the Lord this morning as we partake of these elements saying, God, you made a covenant with me through your blood. It's irrevocable. It's unchanging. And it's because of your grace that we even want to be with him. So hopefully we'll see all of that fleshed out in these verses. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into Judges chapter 10. God, thank you for another opportunity we have to open your word. What a privilege. So many people around the world, brothers and sisters, don't have a copy of your word or maybe have a copy but are afraid to open it for fear of what the government might do to them. We don't have any of those problems. We get to come here together, and we get to enjoy a feast God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us taste buds, spiritual taste buds that would taste and see that the Lord is good. And as we see Jesus in the scriptures, that we would, our our appetites would be dull to lesser things. We all pursue lesser gods. We all struggle with idolatry. And we all struggle in different ways with idolatry, but the issue is the same. We're seeking to be satisfied by something other than you, and that is a terrible, terrible decision. And it leads to disastrous consequences as we see in the book of Judges. So, Father, please open our eyes. Holy Spirit, give us the gift of illumination that we would see you are what our souls have longed for. 
Even as we sing during Christmas, come desire of nations, come. You are what we desire. Show us Christ this day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to split this chapter up into two main sections. The first is in verses 1 through 5, and we're going to call it a major reminder of God's grace. These are minor prophets, but they're teaching us major things, a major reminder of God's grace. Let's start in verse 1. Now, after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, which is incredibly unfortunate, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, the first thing that stands out to us in verse 1, obviously, is this man named Dodo. Incredibly sad that forever etched in all of eternity, this man, Dodo, I can't wait to meet this man. I wonder why his father named him such a crazy name like this, and we just get to enjoy laughing at him. So that's the first thing that stands out to me in verse 1. The second thing that should stand out to us in verse 1 is the name Abimelech. After Abimelech. This is why I call this a major reminder of God's grace. There should be no after Abimelech. There should be no after Abimelech. There should be nothing after Abimelech. After Abimelech, all of Israel should have been destroyed. I mean, remember what Abimelech did. Abimelech is a terrorist. And they willingly, Israel willingly said, we want him to be our king. We think he's godly. We think he's a good leader. We think he's virtuous. We want him. He was funded by Baal's temple money. He was not given power by God. He was a destroyer of Israel. Remember the bramble bush. He's the bramble bush that just set Israel ablaze. He caused chaos. He had infamous treachery against Gideon's family. And after all of this, God still will give a deliverer. This is how our God works. You and I have after Abimelechs in our lives. We feel like we have out sinned God. And God says, there is still much grace left for Israel and there is still much grace left for you. There is. There is much grace left for you and for me. There's an after Abimelech which should give us pause to see the sheer grace of God on display. The people of Israel have completely abandoned God. But God will still save them. God will still save them. And he uses Tola. He's the first of the minor judges, the son of Pua. He's a man of Issachar, and he brings deliverance for 23 years. Uh, verse 2, he judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried in Shamir. That's all we know. 23 years, he brings uh, deliverance to his people, and he dies. After him, verse 3, Jair, the Gileadite, arose and judged Israel 22 years. We're not going to find out much more about this man either. In, in fact, you typically learn more about a person's life from like a newspaper obituary than you do from these short little verses. But we're going to get hints at God's grace. We don't see much in Tola, but we see a lot. And Jair, he had, verse 4, 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havot Jair to this day. And Jair died and was buried in Kimon. 30, it's kind of like a 12 days of Christmas song, right? 30 camels riding, 30 donkeys riding, 30 children riding, 30 cities. 
What's, what are we to make of these 30 sons, 30 donkeys, 30 cities? Uh, the donkeys and cities in, in Hebrew are uh, homonyms. They're, they're spelled almost identically, but they just sound the same, and they mean completely different things. So it's a, it's a play on words, uh, what's happening here. I don't think there's much to make of 30 donkeys. I don't think there's much to make of 30 cities. It's a little bit more of an issue because God's supposed to be king over them, and Jair's kind of becoming king himself. But really, the, the place where I think we need to pause a little bit is 30 sons, because even if you're like the Duggar family, that's not what you do naturally with just one wife. I think in order to have 30 sons, there's a hint here at multiple women involved, which would tell us that even though Jair is a deliverer raised by God, he is taking to himself many wives and living like the Canaanite people. That's why we've called this book the Canaanization of Israel. He's looking like the pagan nations around him. They have many wives. Why can't I have many wives? Now, again, not explicit, implicit, but I think we are seeing messed up, broken people being used by God to do what God is wanting to be done in Israel. God's grace is on display. And that's it. That's all we see of Tola. That's all we see of Jair. They're done. Uh, you don't typically, if you're a good Jewish boy, um, you wouldn't be celebrating Christmas, I guess, if you're a good Jewish boy, but if you're a Messianic Jewish boy, you'd be celebrating Christmas. Um, you're not going to be asking for the Tola and the Jair action figures in your stockings. You want the Samson action figure because he's the guy that's incredibly buff. He's the guy that gets the job done. Tola and Jair, we don't really care about them. There's not much said about them. But what we see is we see God's grace on display in there even being a Tola and a Jair after Abimelech. God says, I'm not done with my people and I'm going to give them grace. A major episode, a major remembrance, a major scene of God's grace. Number two, verses 6 through 16, we see a major lack of repentance. So we've seen a major remembrance of God's grace. There is an after Abimelech, and now we see a major lack of repentance. Verse 6, Then the sons of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. But listen to this list. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods and the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. This is the longest list of false gods that we've seen in this book. It's not just one false god. It's not just one false deity. It's many. The, multipli the multiplicity of what Israel is doing in their sin is just being um, seen on display very clearly in this verse. And in these passages, it's going to be fleshed out to a degree where we're going to see their faithlessness stacked on high before God. They're not just merely in critical situation here. They are in a disastrous situation where they're serving every other false god known to man. They're serving the gods of the Philistines. Dagon is the main god of the Philistines. He's a half-man, half-fish god. And they say, that's our god. They're serving the gods of Moab, one of which demands child sacrifices. We have a, a beautiful family devotional book in our house. It's huge and has these beautiful pictures. 
and it goes through books of the Bible and sec sections in the Bible. And there's one on the book of Ruth. Um, she's a Moabite person. She's a Moabitess. And we're going to talk about that when we end up studying the book of Ruth together. She's a Moabitess. It's very interesting because in this picture book, I'm reading this to my children about Ruth, and it's actually right about the time of Judges. That's how Ruth starts, right? During the time of the Judges. That's why we're getting a background into the study of the book of Ruth. I'm looking at this picture, and there's a, a man who's far off in the distance, and he's kneeling down on the ground. Mind you, I'm reading this to my three children. He's kneeling down on the ground, and he's holding up a little baby. And it's in the distance enough to where I'm reading this, and I, I kind of just put my hand over that. But my daughter caught it, and she goes, Daddy, what's that? What's that? And I said, that's a picture of what it looks like when you don't believe in God. You're, you're going to say, okay, fine. I'll give my child to be burned in the furnace. And Israel says, that's fine. We'll follow that, God. We're okay with that, God. This is intense apostasy. How is God going to respond to this list of false gods that they're serving? Verse 7, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. What's God's response? It's anger, and he sells them to their oppressors. He sells them into their false idol worship. Every time Israel worships the, the idols and the gods of a foreign nation, that nation ends up suppressing them. Every time they worship the Philistines, guess who's coming up after Jephthah? We're going to see Samson. You know, Samson's the one who fought against the Philistines, delivered Israel from the Philistines. They're worshiping these gods, and the nations that those gods represent begin to oppress them. Idolatry, you can mark this down, you can write this in your notes, but write this on your heart. Please let this always be in the forefront of your mind. Idolatry always leads to enslavement. Always. They will worship what they think will satisfy, and they will begin to be enslaved to that worship. Unless the grace of God opens your eyes to see that it does not satisfy, you will be enslaved to that which you idolize. But that's not all. Verse 8, they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years, they afflicted all of the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and Gilead and the lands of the Amorites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. So Israel was greatly distressed. So idolatry always leads to enslavement. Unless God intervenes, idolatry always brings enslavement. Uh, if we're honest, we've experienced that, right? We've experienced that as a broken people whose hearts always want to worship something. We want to worship something and we become entrenched in that thing and that becomes our image. That becomes everything we're about. That becomes all that we live for. We become enslaved to it. But the opposite works. Once we are enslaved, our enslavement leads us to further idolatry. And it's a cycle. That's why judges is a cycle. That's why sin is a cycle. We idolize something, and we become a servant to that thing. And as we serve it, our enslavement leads to more idolatry. Now, what do I mean by that? When we idolize something, we, we seek to be satisfied by that thing. And we know it's not going to satisfy us. Ultimately, we all know only Jesus satisfies. It's only going to enslave us. 
But because we idolize that thing, our response usually is not, it's obviously not satisfying my soul. Usually it's, I must not be worshiping it enough. Idolatry leads to enslavement. And then enslavement to our idolatry leads to further idolatry. Typically, when we're stuck in a pattern of sin, we don't say, I'm done, I need out. We say, I'm just doing this wrong. Let's think about somebody who's boy crazy or girl crazy, relationship crazy. Somebody says, I just, oh, I just want a relationship. That's what they idolize. I just want to be in a relationship. I just want to be married. I just want a boyfriend. I just want a girlfriend. I just want a relationship. And that's what they idolize. So they're seeking to be satisfied by the idol of relationships. So typically they will jump into any relationship that they can get their hands on. They might even lower their standards to have that relationship. And so they say, I want this relationship. And so they lower their standards. They get the relationship. They get hurt because of the relationship. They don't leave the relationship saying, well, relationships obviously don't satisfy. There's something else out there. What do they say? It was the wrong relationship. I just didn't do the relationship well enough. I need to work harder at relationships. They don't say, relationship is a bad God. They say, I just need to serve that God harder. I need to work harder at serving it. See, our problem when we come to idolatry is that our motive in worshiping worshiping that idol is we want to be satisfied by it. We think it's going to satisfy Only when God in his grace breaks the chain of our sinful idolatry can we have that unmasked before us and we go, oh, only God satisfies. Turn to Genesis 29. This is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Genesis 29. We see relational idolatry in this chapter. It's actually many people have some relational problems in this chapter. Um, Jacob, not really loved by His father that much runs away after lying, goes to Laban, sees Rachel, wants to get married, thinks that she's going to satisfy him, ends up marrying Leah um, because of Laban's treachery. Leah gets married first, then Rachel, and because Jacob thought Rachel was the one that was going to satisfy me, Leah is unloved in the marriage. Um, If you go down to verse 31, Genesis 29, 31, The Lord saw that Leah was unloved. And so he opened her womb. It's because verse 30, Jacob obviously went into Rachel also. Indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. So Leah has a problem with relationships. My husband doesn't love me. That's a terrible place to be. This is a problem. She's going to say, I will do anything that I can do to make sure that he loves me. That's her idol. I want to be loved by my husband. Which, by the way, that's not a wrong thing, right? A desire to be loved by your husband is not a wrong desire. When it becomes a controlling desire, when it becomes everything you live for, that's when it turns into a bad thing. Even a good gift from God, if you worship it as God, becomes a bad thing. So what happens? Leah conceives, verse 32. She bears a son, and she names him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. You know that Hebrew names are very pregnant with meaning, right? They have huge, profound meaning in them. You're you're saying a sentence when you say uh, a Hebrew person's name. And this sentence is very simply, surely now my husband will love me. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, hey, can you please call, surely now my husband will love me for dinner? Like, can you imagine that? 
every single time she says his name. Is she looking at her baby or is she looking at her husband? Surely now will my husband love me? Jacob doesn't. So verse 33, she conceives again. And she names this son because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me this son also. So God's given me a son because I'm not loved. That's child number two. This is a great family. Hey, maybe now my husband will love me. Come to dinner. And by the way, God sees I'm unloved by my husband. Come to dinner. Like this is a sad family situation. You thought you had family problems. This is a terrible family situation. She wants to be loved by her husband. That is what is all consuming. Notice after the first kid, she doesn't go, well, that obviously didn't work. She goes, I, I got to get another. I just got to try harder at making my husband love me. Idolatry leads to enslavement, and enslavement to that idol leads to more idolatry. A third son. Now, this time, verse 34, my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Surely this time, no. Names him Levi. It's very interesting to do a study of how these kids end up. Last but not least, verse 35, she conceives again, bears a son, and says, this time, after three kids, I'm done. It's taken me three kids, which is many years, but I'm done with the enslavement to the idolatry of my husband's affection. So this time, I'm going to praise the Lord. God's love for me, is enough. It satisfies. I don't need my husband's love or affection. I have God's love. And so this time, I'm going to praise the Lord. And that child's name is Judah. And Judah is the son who is going to bear the Messiah. He's the great, 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 great grandfather of the Messiah. This time, I'm praising the Lord. Uh, my eyes are off of my idol, and they're on to Jesus. We have so many places where we get stuck in idolatry. And when we get stuck in idolatry, and we realize, oh, it's not satisfying me the way that I thought it was going to, typically our first knee-jerk reaction is not, I should stop doing this. It's just, I must not be doing this the right way. I need to sin harder. I need to sin in a different way. And obviously we don't think that, but that's the pattern that we live out. We see Israel doing that. Enslaved to idolatry, and their idolatry brings enslavement, and their enslavement brings about greater idolatry. Verse 10. What's Israel going to do? They cry out to God. And they say, we have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. We've sinned. We've sinned. But notice, they only cry out to God when they need him. Because this is such a rebuke to my own soul as I've been reading through the book of Judges. They talk to God a lot. Israel talks to God a lot but they only talk to God when they need him to do something on their behalf. And it's just a great question to our hearts. How often do we talk to God when we don't need anything from him? How often do we talk to God when we just say, I want an intimate relationship with you, not, hey, can I get something from you again? Can you serve me? Be my butler? This is something so major in these minor prophets because we get a picture of what the beginning stages of a lack of repentance looks like, and it looks like this, only going to God when you need something from him. This is a religion of crying out to God only when you need him. And so they say, we've forsaken you, and we've served the bills. That's their list. They didn't really prioritize and specify everything that they did. They just said, we've served false gods. God's going to give them a list. 
verse 11. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, the sons of Ammon and the Philistines? Also, when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Moabites and the Moanites oppressed you, you cried out to me. I delivered you from their hands. So you've got your list of we forsook you and we are worshiping Baals. Let me give you a list, God says. This is all the things that I've done for you. Yet, verse 13, you have forsaken me and you've served other gods. And because of that, therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go ahead, cry out to your gods. You chose those gods. Let them save you. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. God says, man, I can deliver you. Look at every time I have delivered you. I can do it again, but I'm not going to. Go deliver yourself. Let the new gods that you're serving deliver you. Let them be your satisfaction. Let them deliver you. Can I just ask a question? Are you okay with God saying this? God literally says, I'm not going to save you any longer. Are you okay with God saying that? I, I think in our maybe New Testament mindset, we just think that God's always going to forgive and he's always ready to forgive and always forgiving and no matter what, we'll just forgive. And here he says, done, I will not deliver you. God is not a genie in a bottle. God's not a vending machine. God's not an instrument to be played. God is God to be worshiped and served. There's an amazing commentator, um, Dale Ralph Davis. He is the go-to guy for everything Old Testament. Uh, many of you have read his commentaries before in school, and he is the guy to read. Uh, I want to read a section from his commentary on this verse. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think the way he says it is so profound and has a really good heart check for us this morning. He says this, Israel is singing the exact same song, just the 16th verse. The theology of bomb shelter religion teaches that, of course, God will help you in your time of need. Bomb shelter religion, just when you're in a terrible time, just you call upon God then, but you don't call upon God at any other time. That he's helpfully enough, incredibly naive and hopelessly soft. He's like a great vending machine in the sky into which you only need to drop a token or two of repentance before he spits out the relief that you currently crave. Religion is a great game. You only need to know a few rules. And Yahweh is a great God if you happen to need him and you want to use him. Yahweh must destroy these false images we fashion of him. Israel apparently assumed that whenever things became too bad, they could always go back to Yahweh. But here he says they cannot. And then he says these words. There is a difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and returns home and a whore who pleads for her husband's security only until she finds someone else to take her on. There's a difference. Many in the church have made a God for themselves that's just okay with the lack of repentance. You know, God just will always give you grace, always forgiveness. You don't need to repent. He'll just give you grace. If that's you this morning, and I think we've all fallen into that trap where we think repentance doesn't matter at all to God, then we're making a God out of our own imagination. That's not the God of the Bible. We must beware of our tendency to make God safe. 
When we do that, we end up worshiping something other than the Holy One of Israel. And so the New Testament Christian would say, well, you know, I, I get it, but Old Testament, Old Testament, that's God, judgment, uh, threats. Um, if you don't do this, I'm going to do that. That's Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians. God doesn't do that anymore. Some even go so far as to say there's two different gods. There's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, there's one God, and he's unchanging. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And by the way, the God of the New Testament does the exact same thing that he did in the Old Testament. First of all, you see many episodes of God's grace in the Old Testament. How about Noah? Most people turn to that for a picture of judgment. Well, it's a picture of grace far before it's a picture of judgment. Because God says, look, you have about 62 to 68 years, give or take a little bit, depending on how you do the math. You have about 65 years to repent before a flood comes. There is judgment coming, but I'm giving you guys 65 years to repent. And then the judgment comes. Anybody could have gone into that boat. Anybody. There's grace in the Old Testament. And there's judgment in the New Testament. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Just a little lie. A little tiny lie about how much money they gave to the church versus kept for themselves based off of the sale of a property. And they're instantly struck dead. Acts chapter 7, Peter literally turns to Simon, a magician, and says, you have no part in the kingdom of heaven. There's no way you're getting in. Judgment. 1 Corinthians 11, some people are sick and some are even dead because they took communion in an unworthy manner. James chapter 5, there's a sin that leads to death. 1 John chapter 5, there's a sin that leads to death. Revelation 19, Jesus is going to come back in judgment and destroy all wickedness. Or how about Romans 1? Turn there just really quickly. Romans 1. Because I think Romans 1 is a picture of what God's doing here in Judges. God is no different. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Romans chapter 1, verse 23. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of the birds and of the four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So this is people involved in idolatry. What does God do? Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. This is what God's doing in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 10, what God is doing is he's giving Israel over to their idols. He says, you think that will satisfy? Fine, I will not be gracious to you in this moment and let you see deliverance. I'll be gracious to you in this moment by letting you see the end of your sin. I'm going to let you go to the end of your sin. I'm going to let you experience that your idolatry will not satisfy. He gives them up. Maybe you worship money. Now, obviously, we don't you know, put a $10 bill down on the ground and we bow down and worship it. But if you live to be satisfied by money, if money is everything you're all about and you find your security in money and you find your hope in money, God would say to you, if you want to live for money instead of for me, then money is going to rule your life. It'll control your hearts. It'll control your emotions. It'll control everything there is to control about you. If you want to be popular, maybe your idolatry is being popular, known by everybody, loved by everybody, then popularity is going to rule and control your heart. If you want any other God besides me, it's as if God is saying this, then go ahead and see how merciful those gods are to you. See how merciful those gods are. See how good those gods are. See how good money is at saving you, at guiding you, at giving you eternal life and satisfaction. That's grace. God in judgment is giving grace. And at the very beginning of our study of the book of Judges, we saw that there's grace in judgment. That God would say, I'm going to let you go. 
I'm going to let you go to the end of your idolatry so that you can see it doesn't satisfy and it will bring you back. That's what Paul says. I'm going to deliver them over to Satan so that they would repent. Let them see the end of their sin. He gives them up. I'm not going to step in. I'm going to let you see the end. I'm going to remove my grace. I'm going to remove my protection, the grace of my protection, and I'm going to let you see the grace of the judgment of idolatry. How does Israel respond? Verse 15. They say, we have sinned. Do whatever seems good to you. And I wish that it would have ended there. But then they say, only please deliver us this day. Um, okay, God, you can do whatever you want to us. Just, just do this one thing for us now. And then you can do whatever you want. This isn't how you repent. This is how you sell cars to people, right? Um, what do you want? Do you want the, the leather chair? Okay, cool. Whatever you want, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. Just promise me you're going to buy the car. This is not repentance. You don't, you don't nickel and dime with God. Of If we do this, then you do this. They say, go ahead, you can do that, but just do this for us right now. This isn't repentance. One commentator says it this way, mere recognition of sin is not repentance from sin. Repentance is a heartfelt conviction and a hatred of what was done, regardless of whether it causes you trouble or not. These people are sorry for their consequences, not for the sin. Here's two signs that repentance is real. Sign number one, you are sorry for sin not just for consequences. You have a sorrow for the actual sin that you committed, not just for the consequences. That's what they're saying. Do whatever you want to do to us, but just take these consequences away. Please deliver us now. Second sign that repentance is real, not only a sorrow for sin and not just your consequences, but also a sorrow for the idolatrous motives. You're sorry for the idol that you substituted something in place of God. Not just behavioral change. Now, you need to change your behavior. But if you think that repentance is just, I'm going to stop doing this, but I'm going to keep on worshiping that idol inside, that's not repentance. Repentance says, okay, I'm going to forget about the outside for a second and go straight to the inside of the heart. And I'm going to see what were my idolatrous motives. And those, if you change those, if God and his grace will allow you to change those, then you'll live differently. The behavior will change. But they say, you know what, just do, it. do this for us. One thing, just really quick, do whatever you want, but just one thing. What a tragedy when people become so accustomed to the mercy of God that they despise it even in asking for it. They're despising the mercy of God even in asking for it. There is, this is a huge lesson. This is why I wanted to spend time on this. There is a way to turn from your idolatry to God in an idolatrous way. To turn to God and treat him as an idol to say, can you get me out of the jam of this idol over here? What I need to do. What do I need to do? Let me push the right buttons. Let me make the right sacrifices. Let me do whatever I need to do to get your attention, to change the problem in my life, and then I'll be okay. And I can go back to my idolatry. There's a way to repent in an idolatrous way. If we say to God, God, I want you and I need you because I want you and I need you to be able to give me X and I can't give that by myself, then X is your real God. X is your real God, not God. Only when we say, God, I want you and I need you because of who you are and what you've done, you and you alone, that's, that's when we know he is our true and greatest joy. Regardless of whether we're given X, Y, or Z, if we have God, we have all we need. Then and only then are we making the true God truly our God. So, what should we do? We shouldn't be like them. 
They say, please, please, just deliver us. Do whatever else you want, just deliver us. What should we do? Turn to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 28. This is the greatest gospel verse in the Old Testament. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He who conceals his transgressions. The word conceal most often in the book of Proverbs is a word that is used favorably of concealing the transgressions of others. When others sin against you, you conceal it. You don't become bitter or angry about it. You conceal it. It's a good word. But here, when it's your own sin, it's a very bad thing to conceal it. God demands that you not conceal it. Expose your sin before God because if you hide it, you won't prosper. And we've seen that in the book of Judges. Not just prosper in some economic sense, but find true satisfaction. Find true joy. You're not going to get that if you try and find it through idolatry. Confess and forsake. Don't just confess. The Israelites did that. Hey, we did this. This is our list. These are all the things we did. Just take away the consequences. We'll be okay. No, confess and forsake. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Now, we're not done yet. Judges, go back. Judges chapter 10. One more verse. The sons of Israel cry out, please, just deliver us. Verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods. There's a button you can press. Oh, I'll, I'll stop doing this. God, now you need to work. They serve the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. They simply confess. They don't really forsake. There's a little bit of it here, but they don't really forsake because we're going to see them. They go right back to idolatry. And God still steps in. And God still grants Grace. Why? Because he can't bear their misery any longer. Some of your translations might say afflictions. It's the same word that's used in Isaiah 63, verse 9, where God says, in your affliction, I am afflicted. It hurts God to see us going through the consequences of sin when he's all the while saying, I'm here to satisfy you. I'm here to give you redemption. Turn to me. Therefore, though we have seen the severity of God's judgment... And we have seen him say, I'm not going to deliver you anymore. I'm going to turn you over. A hope for our forgiveness and reconciliation with God does not depend on our ability to confess and forsake. That's why Dale Ralph Davis says, our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. That's why I love 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But it doesn't just end there. Our forgiveness is not dependent upon our ability to itemize our sins. God's not the IRS where we're trying to itemize all the things that we've done. So that, okay, here's what we've done. Now forgive me for these things. We're good. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, here are our sins. These are the things we've done. Here's a list of 10 things. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Ten things gone. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All the sins that you and I do every day that we don't even realize we're doing. So we don't ask for forgiveness. He says, I'll cleanse you from that too. Past, present, and future. 
Our hope isn't going to rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. So we've seen a major episode of God's grace. We've seen a major episode of a lack of repentance in the minor prophets here. But can I just say, I think there's two people, groups in this service this morning, those who think lightly of the severity of God's judgment and those who think lightly of the kindness of God and compassion. If you think lightly of the severity of God's judgment, these verses are for you. There is a time and a place when God will say, I'm done, no more, I will not deliver you, and he'll turn you over. Don't think lightly of the severity of God's judgment. But equally so, don't think lightly of the kindness of God. If you think lightly of the kindness of God, if you just picture God as some angry being that every time you do anything wrong, he's just mad at you and ready to pounce. The next time you do anything wrong, he's just, that's it, I'm done. I will never step in ever again. These verses are for you because Israel fails to repent in a genuine way and God still says, I love them too much. I can't bear this anymore. I'm stepping in. I'm stepping in. He could bear Israel's suffering no longer. Many Christians, especially those who have a lively sense of God's severity, but a little sense of his kindness, need to meditate on this text. You must see Yahweh's heart of grace, kindness, and compassion. Oh, and by the way, don't forget where God's showing you that heart. In the middle of the Old Testament, our God is a gracious God. He's always been and he always will be. And that's what we celebrate when we come to gather at the table. What a perfect time to gather. We come to celebrate the gospel. This is a renewal of our commitment to God. It's not a renewal of the covenant. The covenant has been made, and we fail that covenant all the time. But God made the covenant through Jesus Christ so that you and I, in an irrevocable way, you and I can be set apart, saved, sanctified, redeemed, and ultimately one day enjoy glorious bliss in heaven with him. So we come to rededicate ourselves, to renew our own spirits, to recommit ourselves to that covenant. This is not a time where we come together and we say, see, I know why God died for me. I'm awesome. I've done really good this week, and I get to celebrate being an awesome Christian. This is a time coming to say, see, I know why God died for me, because I have failed again and again and again. And my repentance isn't genuine all the time. And my hope and security rests in God's grace. Let these elements show you the intensity of the compassion of Jesus, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. He didn't wait. He didn't say, you know what, you clean up your act and then come talk to me. He said, let me come find you. Let me seek you out. Let me hunt you down. Let me do all the work to cleanse you. And let me show you that I will satisfy your soul so that you can gladly turn away from every other idol in your life. These elements are obviously for believers then. These elements are to rejoice and celebrate what Jesus has done in your life. So if you are here this morning and you do not know if Jesus has truly set you apart unto himself, if you have not believed the gospel, if you have not submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord, today is the day to repent. Today is the day to turn to him. But if you're in a place where you're not sure, let these elements go by. Let them pass. 
But please don't leave until you talk with one of us and you figure out how you can be made right with Jesus, through Jesus, because of Jesus. God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, on the cross, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's what we celebrate. So as we sing, I'm going to ask the men to come and pass these elements. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these elements are for you. Take them, hold them. We'll take them together after we're done singing. Let's glory together, not in our ability of repenting or in our ability to confess or in our ability to live out righteousness. Let's glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save sinners like you and like me. Father, we thank you so much for another opportunity that we have to worship you through communion, to come before you and to declare through these elements that you have overcome all of our sin, all of our shame. You have kept no record of wrongs. As far as the east is from the west, you have done away with every possible sin and you will remember them no more. What a blessing to be able to live in the glory of the grace of the gospel. May we sing to you now with hearts that have been forgiven, that have been changed, and that are grateful for the grace that we have in Christ. I'm going to ask the men now to come and pass out the elements. Take them, hold them, and then we will take them together.